HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Artifact Coffee and by the Indigo Road Restaurant and Consulting Group. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at Heritage Radio Network. Good afternoon, and welcome to Eating Matters, where we talk about food policy and how it impacts all of us. I'm your host, Jenna Liute, and we're broadcasting live from Roberta's on Heritage Radio Network. Over the past month, we have seen unprecedented devastation caused by multiple hurricanes hitting the U.S., starting with southeast Texas, followed in rapid succession by Florida, and most recently, Puerto Rico. Food relief is, of course, one of the most important services provided during a natural disaster, and it always seems, to me at least, to be an area that receives little attention in terms of what this actually looks like. It's as challenging an undertaking as it is vital, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about how food gets to people who need it the most, as well as what happens when the cameras go away and the long road to recovery begins. Joining me on the line today to discuss is Brian Green, CEO of the Houston Food Bank, an organization that has been at the very center of relief efforts in the southeastern Texas area for more than a month. Brian, welcome to the show. Thank you very much for having me. I want to start by providing some background for our listeners on the size and scope of the food bank, um, what areas you serve, and how the organization, um, you know, works with relation to other local feeding operations. Sure. So Houston Food Bank is a Feeding America food bank that's a network of about 200 uh, organizations that primarily what we do is we receive surplus food donations from the food industry and then we channel them to area charities serving families in need. So we have, uh, we look like warehouses and kitchens, and then we have lots of trucks and lots of volunteers and staff members who then work in turn. Each food bank generally has several hundred charities that it supplies, and that's how we're able to serve large territories. So Houston Food Bank is an example of a Feeding America Food Bank. We serve 18 counties around Houston wow. through a network of 
600 uh, uh, charities, most of them churches, that do food assistance for families. Um, but then also we have a backpack program in about 600 schools, and we do hot meals for about 70 after-school programs. So we're like a hub with lots of folks, but the folks are all voluntary collaborations. And by backpack program, just so those um, for those who don't know, it's providing kids with food to take home over the weekend. Is that right? Yes. So the backpack program is specifically designed for the kind of the worst cases, the, the children that the teachers do believe are not eating on weekends. That's, that's a very small minority of the kids as a whole, but it's the most critical group. Mm-hmm. So it's a targeted supply. And what are some of the other kind of programs um, apart from the actual distribution that you, um, that you provide? Are there um, you know, su- support services for applying for SNAP or you know, any other kind of uh, operations that happen? Yes. So like most of the Feeding America Food Banks, we recognized several years ago that most of the food insecure population we're already interfacing with mm-hmm. through the network of charities that we supply. So it only made sense. Um, that we use that opportunity to help them uh, receive SNAP benefits, if, which is food stamps, if they're eligible. Mm-hmm. Uh, because, you know, the, how much we as, you know, using charitable surplus food can do versus what they can buy at the grocery store with SNAP benefits is totally different. We can provide much better service that way. So, yeah, we have a, we have a team of about over, of over 20 people that they go out to our partner charities and help families get signed up with SNAP. That's one of our bigger, bigger initiatives. We also, because we're, you know, we do logistics, what we really do. Mm-hmm. So we have a program we call Teachers Aid. We provide school supplies for teachers in low-income schools. Um, we have, uh, at, of course, the after-school programs. That's what our Kids Cafe does. Uh, so it's a, the hot meal. So it's really a wide range of different things, all kind of starting from an infrastructure that you build to distribute uh, donated surplus food. Oh, and you're the biggest food bank, is that right? Did I read that right? Um, nationally speaking? Yeah, so the Houston Food Bank last year, I think it was about 86 million meals. This is uh, what, our, what our total is. That's the largest of the Feeding America food banks, or of any of the food banks, frankly, in the world. It's um, huge. But, you know, it's just a question of how much Houston has been willing to support the food bank that's made it possible. Wow. Um, okay, so how did your operations change, if at all, to prepare for the storm? Well, as they like to say in Texas, this is not this was not our first rodeo. <laughs> uh, so, you know, we had lessons, lessons learned from previous disasters. So one of the things that we do is we deliberately accumulate 40 tractor trailer loads you know, like as in a semi-truck, right? Mm-hmm. 40 of those loads of disaster relief supplies so that uh, we can both pre-position some supplies with partners, like some of the shelters, before a landfall. But also uh, what we've learned is essentially the first 72 hours after a, after a hurricane hit, the city is on its own. Um, any community is, as the national relief efforts take a while to get going, mm-hmm. uh, so that we can basically take care of needs very immediately. Um, so that's how we prepare. Then we have all these arrangements with the city, with the county, with many, many charities, so that they'll be ready to receive what we can get them quickly. So we, that's, that's how we prepare. And then there's lots of parts of the plan specific to the staff members to make sure that they understand what the expectations will be um, so that they're back functioning as quickly as possible and with as little extra direction necessary. 
This is, I know it's true. There are some, um, I might not get this totally right, but um, statistic were like in, in Manhattan, for instance, we're basically three days away from running out of food um, if something happens and like the bridges are closed. Is that, is there, is that similar to the residents of the Houston area where there actually is a very limited supply of food kind of currently available for people if something uh, like a natural disaster happens? <laughs> That's a very good point. There's two things that are like that. One of them is rather surprising. Um, in, a, in a city, uh, there's, there is typically more gas in people's cars than there is at the service station, in the tanks of the service station. This is one of the reasons why, you know, once there's a panic of, oh, my gosh, we have, you know, a shortage, you'll create a shortage. Right. Um, similar to the grocery stores. They look big, but it's when you look at the scale of the population, no, the population can readily clean out a grocery store easily with three days' worth of, worth of supply. So, yes, once you have the supply chain interrupted, then it can, even if the store is uh, not cut off, uh, you know, has power, not flooded, it still may not be able to get supplies in time. Um, okay, so what what actually happened when, what was the food bank's response when um, the storm was hitting? Like, how did you mobilize? Because you, you said that there were kind of, you were prepared with, um, with like, trucks and supplies scattered throughout. But then what, what did the mobilization effort look like? Um, what exactly did you do? And how quickly um, did you get started? Well, this was a particularly frustrating one. This, uh, we hadn't experienced this. Uh, this particular wrinkle that the darn storm sat on top of Houston for so long. Yeah. Uh, so our, our normal approach is you get ready, uh, you do send some some of the loads out, but most of what we've got, our trucks, our, our trucks are in place, the warehouse is ready, we station somebody at the food bank so that as immediately after the storm passes, we can get to work. And in the meantime, you just sort of hunker down. In this particular case where Harvey sat on Houston, and the shelters became overloaded, and they were not did not have nearly enough supplies. We were, frankly, dead in the water for two days, where we couldn't. You, the food bank was there, the supplies were there, but the roads were impassable to the food bank. It wasn't until um, like the late the second day um, that we were able. They were able to. The county could get high start getting high water trucks into the food bank. So that part was frustrating. Um, but then, even uh, though you had, even though you had kind of stations throughout the city, of of well, food so supplies, no, the, the, the quantities that we send out before are just enough. So, like one of the shelters, they told us what they needed was enough for three hundred people for seventy two hours, uh, because they were going to be taking medical patients. Mm -hmm. So we supplied them with enough uh, food and drinks for two hundred three hundred people for seventy two hours. They ended up becoming a shelter for many thousands of people. Wow. Okay. So that free supply would, became totally inadequate, but then we were cut off, and so we couldn't resupply them. Uh, so that part was frustrating, but the, the part that's when the cameras are showing, and you know, that's the kind of the big news part. That's actually a very small part of what becomes the larger picture, mm -hmm. the, the, the whole shelter time, because the reality is within a few days, you try to empty the shelters out of it. You know, sleeping several hundred people or several thousand people on cots in the middle of a big floor, that's no way to live. Mm -hmm. uh, so you want to get people back into houses or apartments or hotels or something, and they get dispersed. And that's when really uh, the more long-term work can begin. And that's mostly what we end up doing. And then what is the... 
Um, and did, did that happen uh, this time, or do people have more prolonged stays in the shelters? Yeah, there's actually um, not that many. So there are still people at uh, two of the shelters now, mm-hmm. uh, the big ones. Um, oh, these are mostly people who actually were on the street before. Okay. So most of the people who were in housing get back in housing you know, within, within a week uh, is the norm. Uh, it took a little longer this time just because of the sheer volume of people. And what kind of foods are, are distributed during this time? Are, are, there, are they any different? Did you, did you rely a lot on the uh, MREs or meals ready to eat that are commonly provided during disasters? I'm always curious well, about the food. I'm like, what did yeah. people eat? <laughs> so, again, the shelter part is a, is a small percentage of the total because it's literally hundreds of thousands of people who had problems and um, probably over 100,000 still you know, are severely impacted. The vast majority of them never went into a shelter. Um, but the shelters, the biggest ones, actually have their own food contract where there's a service provider that's making hot meals there and they're a, they're a company, they just make them and that's huh. how they're mostly being supplied. Oh, um, okay. So most of the, the distribution work, right, right now we're distributing at the rate of about 700,000 pounds per day. What? Right now? Uh, yeah, right now. Um, that wow. is overwhelmingly what we're doing is it's distribution out into the neighborhood. It's the households that are trying to overcome the economic loss, where if you were, your household was not too far above the poverty level, mm-hmm. um, that could be $500 loss, could be a $2,000 loss, can be absolutely devastating, could send you in a tailspin that could take you over a year to recover from. Mm-hmm. Those are the households we're mostly trying to help now are the ones that you're trying to help them overcome the, the loss without having to have worse things happen, without basically, if, if they have to make their payments on the car, they gotta take to make, make, continue to make the payments on their house, even though the house is damaged, those payments don't get forgiven. You know, whatever they've gotta do to not become even worse off, that's what we're trying to help them with. And then, so the food is pretty typical of what you normally distribute. Yes. Yes. Um, so it actually goes in phases. Um, in the first few days, we emphasize ready-to-eat foods, water, and cleaning supplies. We shift away as time moves on from the ready-to-eat foods. The cleaning supplies stay heavy. Um, the water starts to drop off because, you know, once you have tap water, you don't need bottled water. Anymore, right. right. Yeah. Uh, so it's not, uh, we, we tend to get not enough water in the first few days and then... You know, by the time four weeks have come by, we can't stop the damn water loads from coming in. Um, similarly, like with the ready-to-eat foods, the MREs were very popular. But not, but you really don't need MREs that much uh, after a couple of weeks. Mm-hmm. You know, you've got, they're, they're, they're in a hotel or an apartment. Well, actually, it's in a hotel. They don't have to take so they're in an apartment or a, a temporary rental or staying with other relatives where they can cook. That's a better way to live. So we shift over time into, as you say, what would be our kind of our normal distribution products, only just a whole lot more of them. Um, Okay, so 
as I understand it, um, this is not your first experience with feeding efforts during a natural disaster. You were also um, in New Orleans uh, working in food insecurity um, when Katrina hit. So through your work and extensive experience, have you found that feeding operations compared to dis other disaster relief operations is something that's kind of taken for granted and like assumed that is just going to be happening without a lot of attention given to it? Well, you know, you can, in any field, you can't expect the general public to really understand what, you know, how it works, right? Yeah. No matter what you're like in radio, you know, you know, they don't understand, but that's okay. They don't really need to understand it. Um, so long as the people who do the work learn the lesson. Mm -hmm. And I can say that in disaster relief work, absolutely, there were significant lessons that we learned from Katrina, uh, from Ike, and we have refined the models and refined the models, not just the the Feeding America Food Banks, but many of the other organizations, and FEMA, quite frankly. FEMA is, has, quite frankly, really improved a lot. Well, that's good I to really hear. think, though, a big difference, well, there, there were two big differences, Katrina versus, say, Harvey. You know, Katrina, you really did devastate a city, a whole major city, and you knocked out all the infrastructure, the roads. I mean, it's just, it was, a, you know, it was a disaster, a proportionate much bigger disaster, even though by sheer magnitude, because Houston is so large, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the disaster is actually comparable in terms of number of households and stuff. Most of the houses in Houston were not seriously impacted. So it was, you know, the rest of the city could pitch in to take care of the parts that were devastated. Whereas in Katrina, you just blew everything up. Yeah. Then on top of that, um, there were the, the lessons that had not yet been learned. So the response efforts, the, uh, the, the relief efforts, the response efforts were, were too slow and inadequate, especially in the first few weeks. I would make that, I would put that as very comparable to what we are seeing or we saw in Puerto Rico, mm -hmm. where if anything, um, this is just from my vantage point in Houston, I, I have nothing to do with uh, the efforts for Irma or for Maria, but what it looks like to me. Mm -hmm. looks very similar to what happened with Katrina, where at least at the federal level, um, they, they didn't get how much this was different. That, you know, oh, you think you're getting, you know, you almost like, you know, hate to say this, or you almost start to get cocky. Like, yeah, you know, we did a good job on Harvey. We did a good job on Irma. We know what to do here. Right. Well, the magnitude of what needed to be do, done and the difficulty in doing so was fundamentally different for Puerto Rico. But I don't know if it was treated that way. Um, and I, I, that was very similar, I thought, to what happened in the train. Okay. Okay. Well, um, you know what? We have to take a quick commercial break right now to hear a word from our sponsors. But when we get back, we'll uh, discuss the effects the storm has had on the regional food system, as well as what remains to be done during the rebuilding phase. Stay tuned. This episode is presented by Artifact Coffee, serving food and drink to fuel body and soul. Brought to you by the team behind Woodbury Kitchen, Artifact Coffee is located in the restored Union Mills complex. They source their beans from Counterculture in Raleigh, and with help from partners like Great Kids Farm, Black Rock Orchard, and Oasis Creamery, 
They serve food that is fresh, local, and handcrafted all day, every day. This episode is also presented by the Indigo Road Restaurant and Consulting Group. The Indigo Road was founded in Charleston, South Carolina in 2009 by managing partner Steve Palmer. It has since grown to include 16 restaurants in the Carolinas, Georgia, and Tennessee, and it's still growing. Several projects are currently in the works, including Donetto in Atlanta. But the Indigo Road is more than its restaurants. Steve Palmer maintains the philosophy that great service starts with well-cared-for employees. He believes in promoting from within, creating new opportunities for his staff, and developing a strong company culture. As culinary and industry leaders, the Indigo Road also specializes in restaurant and hotel consulting services, providing customized solutions to each. Learn more at indigoroad.com. You know that I'm on the road. You say it won't be much fun and we're back on Eating Matters, where today I'm speaking with Brian Green, CEO of the Houston Food Bank, whose organization continues to be central to the food relief efforts in the Houston area. Um, I want to talk about kind of, again, about challenges. And I'm wondering um, for you, Brian, what has been the biggest challenge, both for you personally um, and to the organization that this situation has presented? And what have you done to kind of manage um, the problem? Well, the charitable sector, one of the things that I find fascinating about a difference between the charitable sector and the private sector is supply of, of whatever resource, the money, the volunteers, and need, and even demand that realizes don't necessarily line up the way it does if you were, say, running a grocery store. You're not going to have way more food than you're going to sell because you're just going to buy less from the suppliers and you're going to always get the money to buy from the suppliers, from the consumers. And, you know, so long as you reasonably run things, things balance out. For charities, you know, we get our money from the community. Mm -hmm. um, our supply is, in the case of a food bank, is what the food industry has as surplus that they'll give us. Our volunteers, most of our labor force, people who choose to come, um, our, our demand is from the partners who will distribute food and that you know, there's a need that extends beyond that isn't necessarily related. The normal operations, trying to line those things up is a major part of the challenge. Mm -hmm. After a disaster, everything, just like all the balls get thrown up in the air, you know, and you kind of, oh, what are you going to build that fits them all together? Um, and at what level? And you kind of have to take your guess because you're going to, you know, we had to figure out, well, how much do we think we're going to distribute a day? How, how much more warehouse space do we need to go rent and acquire? Mm -hmm. How many more trucks are we going to need? How many more forklifts? How many more pallet jacks? How many operators are we going to have to hire? How are we going to get enough volunteers? And where are we going to be able to actually get enough donated food to supply this, as well as the partners to do the distribution? So you just sort of take your best guess and try and piece it all together um, as best you can. And, you know, that's the biggest challenge, quite frankly. Because there's no, like, standard operating procedure for you know, every, every situation is different. There's no baseline for every yeah. unique challenge. And so even if the procedures are different, it's, it's trying to actually make the levels balance out, even though you can't, you have so little control over them. And the easiest way to control them is to hold it to a lower level, right? You just don't do as much, and then you can make sure you don't run out. You, know, right. you, you have enough money. You have enough food. You have enough volunteers. You have enough suppliers. You can get enough trucks and forklifts. You can get everything that's to line up, but then you horribly underserve if you do that. And right. so that's it's, it's why, like, the first 
like week or so is really scary because you don't want to fail. You don't want to let people down, but you also have to make it work. Um, so that's the challenge, mm-hmm. I would say, that is, is unique. It's one of the reasons why I personally am very sympathetic when you hear charities or, frankly, any other organization with you know, people criticizing, well, they should have done this, they should have done that, and disaster is like, it's really hard to yeah. get right into disaster, yeah. quite frankly. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you don't you don't know until you've experienced it yourself, I think, that the true kind of extent and toll that it takes. Um, so what about for you personally? I mean, this is, as you say, not your first rodeo. Um, how, how has the experience been for you, especially since, you know, this is something you've been through before? It seems like it must take quite a toll. Well, um, so Katrina was an utterly, utterly miserable experience. I mean, I, I start to, quite frankly, sometimes choke up a little bit just thinking about how much I hated that, you know, experience of not being able to do remotely as much as needed to be done and the mistakes that everybody made, including myself. And, you know, I just, that was awful. Um, Ike was, you know, kind of like the opportunity maybe to try and have some redemption, you mm-hmm. know, do a, do, a, do a better job. And we worked really hard to not fail. And that's kind of, it's a weird, weird way of looking at it, but it's kind of the way I, I frame it is, you know, whatever you do, do not let people down. Even if, you know, if we're going to be wrong as if we overshot or... Uh oh, now we're not going to be able to pay for this. We're going to be in trouble. You know, just whatever you do, don't fail. Um, but we learned, you know, we were able to put it together pretty well, quite frankly, and Ike. Um, mm-hmm. And people felt really good about how we were able to do this. And this time, probably was a little more comfortable, you know, in mm-hmm. that I think we had learned the lessons well enough um, and people knew what to expect. Um, so many of the volunteers and staff members had been through. Um, our Ike experience in 2008, and now it it wasn't as stressful as you would think. You you know, it's kind of like if you if, if you're a, a CEO, you're used to stress as part of you know that's part of the part of the deal. Yeah, <laughs> you know, you better be okay with that. Yeah, and in this case, there were just so many people who knew what to do mm-hmm. that it it made it much more much less stressful than you might think. Um, to ramp up, and we hugely ramped up. Yeah. Um, you know, end up distributing, you know, in the neighborhood of it, one point three times as much as normal. Wow. Um, and we're, you know, we keep saying this is a, this is not a sprint; it's a marathon. Mm-hmm. For tens of thousands of households, it's going to be many months before they're ready. And so, we deliberately made sure that we're geared up to be able to maintain this level of output um, for six months or more. Um, And I think we're in pretty good shape to do it. Yeah, I think that's like that's such an important point. A lot of people don't realize that it is like the hardest part is often kind of the rebuilding phase. And it takes so long, longer than you might realize. And I'm wondering, like to that point, if you've um, noticed there there, um, being a certain kind of fatigue or decrease attention support by those not personally affected, um, you know, those in other areas of the country, media, donors, like especially given the series of natural disasters that have followed? Oh, yeah. Um, I don't blame people that for that. I don't think they're wrong, quite mm-hmm. frankly. I mean, life, life has to go on. Yeah. Um, one, of the, one of the concerns I had when uh, Irma hit was hoping that 
people would respond well for Irma, mm-hmm. <laughs> and I just say, well, we already did that, and I think people did. Um, I do think that that now has uh, Puerto Rico is paying the price for that because that's where they're, you're seeing the fatigue. Mm-hmm. But there's another aspect to that, and that is. Um, it's important for people not to just say, oh, it's all about we got to take care of the disaster rate because you know, there's so many other things that need to happen. One of the problems that, that like Houston is having, oddly enough, um, is how many people, how many, how much the, uh, the, the fine restaurants are hurting right now hmm. because people don't feel like going out to dinner or if they do, they want to do, you know, spend a little or whatever. It just kind of feels weird for people. That's what they say. Yeah. Well, that's all these waiters and cooks and you know, all these yeah. businesses that um, are struggling as a result. And I talked to other charities in the community that are not doing disaster relief and shouldn't be doing disaster relief. That's not their, you know, that's not their mission, um, who right now uh, have watched their donations drop like a rock and are now in danger. Right. And you say, well, no, you don't want that. You know, what makes a city and makes a, a state, a country, you know, wherever, you know, successful is, you know, you take care of all of these things and you make a whole economy work. You don't just fixate on one thing. So I don't, I don't, I don't, not only do I not blame people for someone having fatigue, it's like, you know, yeah, I don't, we, you know, we need to do this in a way that's sustainable um, and not just uh, assume that this has got to, this is supposed to be everybody's focal point, you know, forever. What about the repercussions to the regional food system? How has the hurricane affected local farmers and, and where the, um, you know, where your, where your food comes from? Well, so um, Houston, uh, the biggest, uh, biggest thing in the area that would be, that was impacted would have been the rice, the rice fields. Mm-hmm. Um, Houston doesn't have as much sugar. Houston is not, well, like uh, you go down further south uh, and you've got the valley. Uh, near, near the McAllen area, uh, big growing area that was not so impacted by the hurricane, which is fortunate. Okay. And then the other biggest growing area in Texas is the Winter Garden area near San, not too far from San Antonio. That was not so impacted. So the rice farmers, we should be worried about that. But the, the like the, the fruits and vegetables, mm-hmm. um, probably less so. That's good. Uh, what we did certain what we did certainly see is. Um, for at least the first couple of weeks, you had what you could call pop-up food deserts, mm-hmm. uh, neighborhoods that normally did have a viable grocery store that had fresh fruits and vegetables, um, where that, that grocery store was flooded or those two stores were flooded. And so temporarily, there were people that needed help that would, it wasn't because um, they didn't have money. It was because their stores weren't, weren't running. Uh, and so we actually worked there, but we trying to be cognizant, you know, we're not trying to run anybody out of business here. Right, um, right. So um, because the food bank um, already does a lot of fresh fruits and vegetables, over 40% of our distribution is fresh fruits and vegetables. Right, really? Um, yeah, yeah. Sorry. Um, I mean, you sound so surprised by that, but that's a very happy statistic. Food bank. Uh, pardon me? That's becoming more and more common for the Feeding America food banks. Yeah. Uh, to heavily emphasize fresh fruits and vegetables is, you know, we've learned two things. One, you know what, we can't, it's not, we can't think of ourselves as we're just simply in the calorie business. Mm-hmm. got to be about nutrition. And two, um, you know, there's a lot of surplus produce. It's really staggering how much yeah. uh, that has grown. People don't buy because it was the wrong shape and size and stuff. It's just crazy reasons. Yeah. So anyway, we step in and get that. But anyway, so... 
it was uh, for the food for the pop up food deserts. It was actually something we could step in and help temporarily. But then we mostly now we're, we're focused not so much on a food desert problem as an income problem, you know, or income and expense problem for the households who've been impacted. And so, how are you addressing that? Well, um, from like a poverty perspective versus a you know food relief. So normally, one of the flaws in the charitable system is how much we supply relative to the actual need is actually pretty small. Uh, if you look at the output of all the you know the food banks and our charitable partners and how much we do for the food insecure population, and food insecurity means um, they do not have enough resources for a reliable access to enough nutritious food for a healthy lifestyle. Okay. Mm-hmm. All for that population, we, the charitable sector, not counting any government food, but government resources, we supply only about 5% of what they consume or need. Wow, right? that's small. It's, yeah. it's not as, yeah, I mean, people are so impressed. Oh, look at how big this is. No, you don't, I don't know. You know, when you look at the size of the population and how many families are struggling, it's not nearly enough. But when you're in a disaster scenario, um, the circumstances become much worse because in addition to the people who are already struggling, add just tens of thousands more households. So we're just trying to be as generous as we possibly can for as long as we can. And we, we, you know, we, we, got, we got the extra warehouse. We're going to be running another one. Uh, we got the extra trucks and the, and the drivers. The, you know, the donors were generous. Okay, we've got that funded. We've got a, we're lining up partners um, to do the distribution. We're going to be working a lot more with some of the schools who's saying that, you know, hey, the, the families in my neighborhood are severely impacted. We're really worried about what's happening with the kids. And we're just going to be giving them as much as we can get up until things stabilize for them. Um, okay, I want to go back to something that you touched on, which was that 40% of um, the food that's distributed is are fresh fruit and vegetables. And this is something that, this is like, evidence of my public health um, background. But I think that, you know, there's always been a a divide between the anti-hunger community and the public health community, which you alluded to. And so I'm wondering, um, you know, what exactly, what sort of specifically has been happening to kind of move the needle in a direction towards providing more fruit, fresh fruit and vegetables, even though this provide, this presents more of a logistical challenge? Uh, Well, I think you kind of (laughs) said it there. So food banks, the philosophy on a food bank is you try and work in partnership with these organizations. Most of them are churches. Mm-hmm. And you think about how a church typically does its pantry. Um, it wants, usually what they want to do is they want to get some dry, by that means shelf-stable items, so they don't have to be refrigerated or frozen and are not perishable, um, and then put them in a bag, and then they sit there and tell somebody needs them, and then they hand them the bag. It's the easiest mode of operation. And bear in mind, these are volunteers. And, and they're doing things the easy way. That's been the challenge for the food bank as well. The people that we have to work with us, that's what they want to do. And more and more food banks, um, as we've recognized, as the public health sector has made its message loud and clear. <laughs> we, we have, have to, you know, like we cannot continue to turn a blind eye to the reality that our customers, the people that we're working with and trying to help, have worse health outcomes than the average American. They're eating worse, mm-hmm. not just less, but worse. Yep. Um, so we have to address that. And so, frankly, we've just gotten a lot pushier. Um, so we we will not sign up a new partner if they are not capable of distributing 
fresh produce. We will not sign up a new partner if they won't be open uh, extra hours. We will not sign up an extra partner if they don't let the let the families choose uh, what they're going to get. Wow, um, that's pretty. So, that's a pretty big um, stand. A pretty you know powerful stance to take because most most of the times you're afraid. You know, it's just the idea of like you need, you don't want to turn anything away. Or that's my yeah. my impression historically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so the, so the model on the on the on the input side. Uh, and there are some food banks that are actually more aggressive than we are on this. We, we, we do, we say no to not that much. Right. Uh, to not, I mean, we just flat out tell the donor, no, we're not taking your stuff anymore because this does not meet our guidelines. Mostly our approach has been to grow the healthy distributions past the, the, uh, uh, the low, what it should be a low part of, part of the diet. So the way I look at it, um, if uh, you know some little eight-year-old girl, it's her birthday, and obviously the the, the mom and the grandma, they they, you know, they don't have money to buy a cake. Yeah, for goodness sakes, get that little girl a birthday cake. Mm-hmm. Um, and if I can get that birthday cake from you know from a grocery store as the you know just one of the extra sheet cakes that they're doing great, what you don't want is that she's eating birthday cake every day. Mm-hmm. So it needs to be a you know um, a small proportion of the total distribution, and the best way to achieve that is to grow your healthy distribution such that the unhealthy or less healthy uh, foods to discourage um, becomes a small part of the total. Um, and that's, the way we, that's the way we look at it. So in most cases, we have not had to tell the donors, no, we won't take your product. There are some, I don't want to say them, but there are a number of them locally where we just flat out said, no, we're just not going to handle your stuff anymore. So it's a, it's a combination of encouraging your donors to provide more fresh fruits and vegetables as well as requiring kind of pantries um, and your partnering organizations to be able to handle this kind of, the, you know, these kinds of donations. Is that right? Well, I would say I would say this, the latter part absolutely true. The, the pantries, you know, here's a partnership we have with them, and we just get a little pushier on our end of the partnership. With the donors, now it's more, um, you know, a, a company that makes snacks. Make snacks. I, you know, I'm not. They're not going to change their business model because the food bank thinks we should do something different. What the, our way that we have changed our mix is by pursuing heavily um, the farms, the packing houses, by going to the grocery stores instead of you know picking up from the distribution center. We're going to the grocery stores multiple times a week so that we can pick up their perishable items. Wow. So we've grown our are uh, uh, what we call foods to encourage, and it's just sort of, okay, that's where we're investing our resources in, in foods to encourage. One of the things that we do now, and this is common for being America Food Banks now, we go to the farms and the packing houses, and we say, we want your, what they call, number two produce. That's the stuff that's not retail beautiful. It's mm-hmm. not that it's decay or anything. It's just the wrong shape, the wrong size, got branch abrasion, Quote, whatever. ugly. <laughs> and we'll pay their cost to pick and bag it if they'll give it to us. Huh. Wow. So, you know, we're coming to them as like a, you know, a viable economic partner of theirs. Right. Um, that, you know, gets us produce for pennies on the dollar, but it gets them, you know, to them, that's, that's a benefit. And that's how we've been able to grow the produce so much. And it also obviously decreases food waste in a, in a major way. But I think that's phenomenal because that requires such a huge, um, I mean, that's logistically very, very challenging. And it has to be something that you had to work to really, um, to really kind of implement. 
So yeah, I'm impressed. Uh, <laughs> both on our end and then, you know, the, the partners yeah. that we distribute to. You know, it requires them to change their model as well. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, well, we're going to, um, I'm going to have to wrap it up in, a, in a, just a minute, but what, um, what's next for the Houston Food Bank? What does the future hold in terms of, you know, where, what, what does the next kind of six months to a year look like for what you'll be focusing on? Well, of course, we're going to be continuing to do the disaster relief in addition to our regular work. The, the number one focus that we were on <laughs> before this uh, rather large distraction um, is looking at how we can channel more of our distribution in support of programs designed to help people get out of poverty. So, you know, we distribute last year about $150 million worth of resources to area charities. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, the way our board is looking at this now is we, you know, we need to be thinking about concentrating more of that in initiatives like, say, a scholarship, only it's food value scholarship. What we call a food scholarship, whereas, you know, uh, somebody in, a, in one of the community college programs to become a welder or HVAC technician or medical technician, um, you know, hey, what if we made it more financially viable for them to do that program, not with cash, which we don't have, but with food? Is that household that we could permanently change their circumstances? And so that's the kind of thing that we're most interested in. We've got a number of different pilots that we're doing, and we want to see how they go. Oh, that's that sounds very, very interesting. I can't wait to um, see how everything unfolds over the next year. Um, okay, so before we wrap up, totally shameless plug. Um, the startup I work for, Our Harvest, donated a uh, you know, percentage um, of our sales for the for a couple of weeks to the food bank, and I'm wondering if there is ongoing need for this kind of support. Well, yeah, but you know, I wouldn't just pick on Houston Food Bank. Um, you know, Feeding America, uh, the national organization, as I say, you know, we've got that food bank in Puerto Rico. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, wow, they yeah. their 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 challenge makes ours look small by comparison. So, yeah, I would, you know, take a look at Feeding America as an organization, then, you know, then you're, you'd be, you could be helping, because I assume your listeners are all over the country. You can be helping food banks in their circumstances all over the country. So spread the, spread the wealth. Spread the love. As they say, spread the love. Okay. Well, this has been such a pleasure to have you on. I really want to thank you for taking the time to walk us through everything that, um, you know, you've been experiencing over the past month and, you know, what we can do to kind of support the ongoing efforts. So thank you. Thank you so much, Jenna. Thank you. Okay, um, we're going to wrap it up. um, But for more on the Houston Food Bank, you can go to houstonfoodbank.org. I, of course, want to thank Brian for coming on the show. And I also want to give a big thanks to our sponsors for your generous support. Show music is by Tim Archer. Uh, Thanks also to my fabulous engineer, Vitor Hirsch. All episodes of Eating Matters are available on the Heritage Radio Network website or as a podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. If you haven't done so already, please subscribe. And if you like what you hear, let us know in the comments section. Like, share, follow, and post to us on Facebook and find us on Twitter at Eat Matters HRN. I'm Jenna Liute, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. 
enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.